Chapter One of the Rangeland Avenger. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The Rangeland Avenger by Max Brand. Of the four men, Hal Sinclair was the vital spirit. In the actual labor of mining, the mighty arms and tireless back of Quade had been a treasure. For knowledge of camping, hunting, cooking, and all the lure of the trail, Lowry stood as a valuable resource, and Sanderson was the dreamy, resolute spirit, who had hoped for gold in those mountains until he came to believe his hope. He had gathered these three stalwarts to help him to his purpose, and if he lived, he would lead yet others to failure. Hope never died in this taunt, gaunt man. With a pale blue eye, the color of the horizon dusted with the first morning mist. He was the very spirit of lost causes, full of apprehensions, forebodings, and superstitions. A hunch might make him journey five hundred miles. A snort of his horse could make him give up the trail and turn back. But Hal Sinclair was the antidote for Sanderson. He was still a boy at thirty, big, handsome, thoughtless, with a heart as clean as new snow. His throat was so parched by that day's ride that he dared not open his lips to sing, as he usually did. He compromised by humming songs new and old, and when his companions cursed his noise, he contented himself with talking softly to his horse amply rewarded when the pony occasionally lifted a tired ear to the familiar voice. Failure and fear were the blight on the spirit of the rest. They had found no gold worth looking at twice, and lingering too long in the search, they had rashly turned back on a shortcut across the desert. Two days before, the blow had fallen. They found Sawyer's waterhole nearly dry just a little pool in the center, with caked dead mud all around it. They drained that water dry and struck on. Since then, the water famine had gained a hold on them. Another water hole had not a drop in it. Now they could only aim at the cool blue mockery of the mountains before them, praying that the ponies would last to the foothills. Still Hal Sinclair could sing softly to his horse, and to himself. And though his companions cursed his singing, they blessed him for it in their hearts. Otherwise the white, listening silence of the desert would have crushed them. Otherwise the lure of the mountains would have maddened them and made them push on until the horses would have died within five miles of the labor. Otherwise the pain in their slowly swelling throats would have taken their reason. For thirst in the desert carries the pangs of several deaths, death from fire, suffocation, and insanity. No wonder these three scowled at Hal St. Clair when he drew his revolver. My horse is gunshy, he said, but I'll bet the rest of you I can drill a horn off that skull before you do. Of course it was a foolish challenge. Lowry was the gun expert of the party. Indeed, he had reached that dangerous point of efficiency with firearms, where a man is apt to reach for his gun to decide an argument. 
Now Lowry followed the direction of Sinclair's gesture. It was the skull of a steer with enormous branching horns. The rest of the skeleton was sinking into the sands. "'Don't talk fool talk,' said Lowry. "'Save your wind and your ammunition. You may need em for yourself, son.' That grim suggestion made Sanderson and Quade shudder. But a grin spread on the broad, ugly face of Lowry, and Sinclair merely shrugged his shoulders. "'I'll try you for a dollar. Nope. Five dollars. Nope. You're afraid to try, Lowry?' It was a smiling challenge, but Lowry flushed. He had a childish pride in his skill with weapons. "'All right, kid, get ready.' He brought a colt smoothly into his hand and balanced it dexterously swinging it back and forth between his eyes and the target to make ready for a snap shot. Ready, cried Hal Sinclair excitedly. Lowry's gun spoke first, and it was the only one that was fired, for Sinclair's horse was gun-shy indeed. At the explosion, he pitched straight into the air with a squeal of Mustang fright and came down bucking. The others forgot to look for the results of Lowry's shot. They reined their horses away from the pitching bronco disgustedly. Sinclair was a fool to use up the last of his Mustang's strength in this manner. But Hal Sinclair had forgotten the journey ahead. He was rioting in the new excitement, cheering the bronco to new exertions. And it was in the midst of that flurry of action that the great blow fell. The horse stuck his right foreleg into a hole. To the eyes of the others, it seemed to happen slowly. The Mustang was halted in the midst of a leap. Tugged at a leg that seemed glued to the ground, and then buckled suddenly and collapsed on one side. They heard that awful, muffled sound of splintering bone, and then the scream of the tortured horse. But they gave no heed to that. How St. Clair in the fall had been pinned beneath his mount. The huge strength of Quade sufficed to budge the writhing Mustang. Lowry and Sanderson drew Sinclair's pinion right leg clear and stretched him on the sand. It was Lowry who shot the horse. You done a brown turn, said Sanderson fiercely, to the prostrate figure of St. Clair. Four men and three horses. A fine partner you are, Sinclair. Shut up, said Hal. Do something for that foot of mine. Larry cut the boot away dexterously and turned out the foot. It was painfully twisted to one side and lay limp on the sand. "'Do something,' said Sinclair, groaning. The three looked at him, at the dead horse, at the white-hot desert, at the distant blue mountains. "'What the devil can we do? You've spoiled all our chances, Sinclair.' "'Ride on, then, and forget me. But tie up that foot before you go. I can't stand it. Silently, with ugly looks, they obeyed. Secretly, every one of the three was saying to himself that this folly of Sinclair's had ruined all their chances of getting free from the sands alive. They looked across at the skull of the steer. It was still there very close. It seemed to have grown larger with a horrible significance. And each instinctively put a man's skull beside it, bleached and white, with shadow eyes. Quade did the actual bandaging of Sinclair's foot, drawing tight above the ankle so that some of the circulation was shut off, but it eased the pain 
and now Sinclair sat up. I'm sorry, he said. Mighty sorry, boys. There was no answer. He saw by their lowered eyes that they were hating him. He felt it in the savage grip of their hands as they lifted him and put him in the Quade's saddle. Quade was the largest, and it was mutely accepted that he should be the first to walk, while Sinclair rode. It was accepted by all except Quade, that is to say. The big man strode beside his horse, lifting his eyes now and then to glare remorselessly at Sinclair. It was bitter work walking through that sand. The heel crunched into it, throwing a strain heavily on the back of the thigh. And then the ball of the foot slipped back into the midst of a stride. Also, the labor raised the temperature of the body incredibly. With no wind stirring, it was suffocating. And the day was barely beginning. Barely two hours before, the sun had been merely a red ball on the edge of the desert. Now it was low in the sky, but bitterly hot, and their mournful glances presaged the horror that was coming in the middle of the day. Deadly silence fell on that group. They took their turns by the watch, half an hour at a time, walking and then changing horses, and, as each man took his turn on foot, he cast one long glance of hatred at Sinclair. He was beginning to know them for the first time. They were chance acquaintances. The whole trip had been undertaken by him on the spur of the moment, and as far as lay in his cheery, thoughtless nature, he had come to regret it. The work of the trail had taught him that he was mismated in this company, and the first stern test was stripping the masks from them. He saw three ugly natures, three small, cruel souls. It came Sanderson's turn to walk. Maybe I could take a turn walking, suggested Sinclair. It was the first time in his life that he had had to shift any burden onto the shoulders of another except his brother, and that was different. Ah, how different! He sent up one brief prayer for Riley Sinclair. There was a man who would have walked all day that his brother might ride, and at the end of the day the man of iron would be as fresh as those who had ridden. Moreover, there would have been no question, no spite, but a free giving. Mutely he swore that he would thereafter judge all men by the stern and honorable spirit of Riley. And then that sad offer. Maybe I could take a turn walking, Sanderson. I could hold on to a stirrup and hop along some way. Lowry and Quade sneered, and Sanderson retorted fiercely, Shut up. You know it ain't possible, but I ought to call your bluff. He had no answer, for it was not possible. The twisted foot was a steady torture. In another half hour he asked for water, as they paused for Sanderson to mount, and Lowry to take his turn on foot. Sanderson snatched the canteen which Quade reluctantly passed to the injured man. "'Look here,' said Sanderson. "'We've got to split up on this. You sit there and ride and take it easy. Me and the rest has to go through hell.' "'You take some of the hell yourself. You ride, but we'll have the water, and there ain't much of it left at that.' Sinclair glanced helplessly at the others. Their faces were set in stern agreement. Slowly, the sun crawled up to the center of the sky, 
and stuck there for endless hours, it seemed, pouring down a fierce heat, and the foothills still wavered in blue outlines that meant distance, terrible distance. Out of the east came a cloud of dust. The restless eyes of Sanderson saw it first, and a harsh shout of joy came from the others. Quade was walking. He lifted his arms to the cloud of dust as if it were a vision of mercy. To Hal Sinclair it seemed that cold water was already running over his tongue and over the hot torment of his foot. But after that first cry of hoarse joy, a silence was on the others, and gradually he saw a shadow gather. "'It ain't wagons,' said Lowry bitterly at length, "'and it ain't riders. It comes too fast for that, and it ain't the wind. It comes too slow, but it ain't men. You can lay to that.' Still they hoped against hope, until the growing cloud parted and lifted enough for them to see a band of wild horses sweeping along at a steady lope. They sighted the men and veered swiftly to the left. A moment later there was only a thin trail of flying dust before the four. Three pairs of eyes turned on Sinclair and silently cursed him as if this were his fault. "'Those horses are aiming at water,' he said. "'Can't we follow them?' They're aiming for a hole fifty miles away. No, we can't follow them. They started on again, and now, after that cruel moment of hope, it was redoubled labor. Wade was cursing thickly with every other step. When it came his turn to ride, he drew Lowry to one side, and they conversed long together with side glances at Sinclair. Vaguely he guessed the trend of their conversation, and vaguely he suspected their treacherous meanness. Yet he dared not speak, even had his pride permitted. It was the same story over again when Lowry walked. Quade rode aside with Sanderson, and again, with the wolfish side-glances, they eyed the injured man while they talked. At the next halt they faced him. Sanderson was the spokesman. "'We've about made up our minds, Hal,' he said deliberately that you got to be dropped behind for a time. We're going on to find water. When we find it, we'll come back and get you, understand? Sinclair moistened his lips, but said nothing. Then Sanderson's voice grew screechy with sudden passion. Say, do you want three men to die for one? Besides, what good could we do? You don't mean it, declared Sinclair. Sanderson, you don't mean it. Not alone out here. You boys can't leave me out here stranded. Might as well shoot me. All were silent. Sanderson looked to Lowry, and the latter stared at the sand. It was Quade who acted. Stepping to the side of Sinclair, he lifted him easily in his powerful arms and lowered him to the sands. Now keep your nerve, he advised. We're coming back. He stumbled a little over the words. It's all of us or none of us, he said. Come on, boys. My conscience is clear. They turned their horses hastily to the hills, and when the voice of Sinclair rang after them, not one dared turn his head. Partners, for the sake of all the work we've done together, don't do this. In a shuddering unison, they spurred their horses and raised the weary brutes into a gallop. The voice faded into a wail behind them, and still 
they did not look back. For that matter, they dared not look at one another, but pressed on, their eyes riveted to the hills. Once Lowrie turned his head to mark the position of the sun. Once Sanderson, in the grip of some passion of remorse or of fear of death, bowed his head with a strange moan. But aside from that, there was no sound or sign between them until hardly an hour and a half after leaving Sinclair they found water. At first they thought it was a mirage. They turned away from it by mutual assent. But the horses had scented drink, and they became unmanageable. Five minutes later, the animals were up to their knees in the muddy water, and the men were floundering, breast-deep, drinking, drinking, drinking. After that they sat about the brink, staring at one another in a stunned fashion. There seemed no joy in that delivery, for some reason. "'I guess Sinclair will be a pretty happy gent when he sees us coming back,' said Sanderson, smiling faintly. There was no response from the others for a moment. Then they began to justify themselves hotly. "'It was your idea, Quade.' "'Why, curse your soul! Weren't you glad to take the idea? Are you going to blame it on me?' "'What's the blame?' asked Lowry. Ain't we going to bring him water? Suppose he ever tells we left him. We'd have to leave these parts pronto. He'll never tell. We'll swear him. If he does talk, I'll stop him pretty sudden, said Lowry, tapping his holster significantly. Will you? What if he puts that brother of his on your trail? Lowry swallowed hard. Well, he began, but he said no more. They mounted in a new silence and took the back trail slowly. Not until the evening began to fall did they hurry, for fear the darkness would make them lose the position of their comrade. When they were quite near the place, the semi-darkness had come, and Quade began to shout in his tremendous voice. Then they would listen, and sometimes they heard an echo, or a voice like an echo, always at a great distance. Maybe he started crawling and gone the wrong way. He should have sat still, said Lowry, because... Oh, Lord, broke in Sanderson. I knew it. I've been seeing it all the way. He pointed to a figure of a man lying on his back in the sand, with his arms thrown out crosswise. They dismounted and found Hal Sinclair dead and cold. Perhaps the insanity of thirst had taken him. Perhaps he had figured it out methodically that it was better to end things before the madness came. There was a certain stern repose about his face that favored this supposition. He seemed much older, but whatever the reason, Hal Sinclair had shot himself cleanly through the head. "'You see that face?' asked Lowry, with curious quiet. "'Take a good look. You'll see it again.' A superstitious horror seized on Sanderson. "'What do you mean, Lowry? What do you mean?' I mean this. The way he looks now, he's a ringer for Riley Sinclair. And you mark me, we're all going to see Riley Sinclair face to face before we die. He'll never know, said Quade, the stolid. Who knows except us? And will one of us ever talk? He laughed at the idea. I don't know, whispered Sanderson. I don't know, gents. But we've done an awful thing, and we're going to pay. We're going to pay. 
End of chapter 1